Hello, friends. Welcome to Fatal Error Season 2. The first season of Fatal Error was a bit of an experiment. Uh, Chris and I didn't know if we had enough thoughts to make a really viable podcast. We didn't know if we would be interesting enough and if people would like the stuff that we had to talk about. Uh, but we got a ton of good feedback uh, over the course of the last season, and we're excited and happy to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said at the end of, uh, I think, episode 10, we're really thankful that all of you have uh, been listening, have started listening, and uh, really have given us such positive feedback. And uh, welcome to season two, episode 11. Uh, I'm Chris Zomback, by the way. And I'm Sarush Kanlu. In the spirit of this podcast being kind of experimental, and since we're paying for the editing costs and the hosting costs out of pocket right now, we wanted to try a uh, somewhat different method for generating money to pay for these editing costs and these hosting costs for this for the show. So we have a Patreon. You can find the Patreon in the show notes. It'll be five bucks a month. And for those five bucks, you get two extra episodes every month. So if you've been listening to it on an every other week basis, you will still be able to listen to it on an every other week basis. But we're adding an episode in between every one of our old episodes and that'll be only for Patreon uh, patrons. Right. So uh, I, another way to think about it is just that we're now producing an episode every week for this season. And uh, one every other one of those episodes will only appear on Patreon. Yeah. So if you like our show, if you want to if you want to help support us, we would love it if you would go to Patreon and, and chip in and make sure that we can keep doing this stuff. We have a bunch of cool ideas for what we want to what we want to do with the show or where we want to take the show. And the more money we have, the more time we have to dedicate to it, and the more cool stuff we can do. So I think it's going to be really exciting to see some of the stuff that we can do. So if you like our show, we would love it if you'd become a patron, and we hope that you enjoy the in-betweener episodes as well. Yeah, thanks in advance for those of you who are who are considering doing that. Uh, yeah. So for today's topic, I think Sarush and I figured we'd talk about code generation in Swift particularly a, a few projects which are out there, one of which is is really new, one of which has been around for a little while. But Sarush, do you want to maybe talk about why you want to cover this topic today? Yeah, for sure. So we've actually had CodeGen in our list of topics to talk about for a while. Uh, there is a project called SourceKitten, which talks to the Apple-provided SourceKit, and it will basically parse your all of your Swift code that you pass it and it will figure out, you know, what's a class, what's a method, all that stuff, and provide that data to you. Um, Xcode internally uses that to parse, like, how it should syntax highlight stuff, how it should figure out, like, what documentation to show when you option click something, where to jump you to when you command click on something, all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of had this, uh, we had a little thing in our episode list that was just like, it just said, source kitten slash code gen. And the original uh, place that I wanted to take this was for you know, dealing with our model layer, we've been working with something called uh, Mode Generator for many years, which, if you've never used, is basically from your Xcode uh, core data model plist file, it will generate a bunch of classes that have all of the, uh, they're like the managed object subclasses that you need to, to work with core data. And that was always really cool and always really useful because when you added something to your model file, you'd need to go back and add it to each of the things and you'd have to do it manually and it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be sure exactly if you'd done it right and if you forgot it, you wouldn't be able to access it, but it would be there. It would be a whole mess. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, it'd be really great, let's say, to do this kind of thing for JSON. So JSON, we have this current 
problem in Swift where it was much easier in Objective C because you could just kind of read out the properties of that a class had. You could say, well, it has a string named that has the name name, and it has an int that's like the age, and you could kind of iterate over those and process those and do whatever you needed to, pull things out of a dictionary, assign them with key value coding. You could do all this stuff. Um, but now with Swift, since we don't have those those powers, I thought that code gen might be a way to kind of like fill in some of those gaps. I found myself, I think we talked in this in the uh, single responsibility principle episode about I have like a struct that represents each model type and then it has a like an NS coding conformant NS object uh, for like encodable and then like you could maybe have one for, for JSON that's like bound by all, all of it's bound by a protocol. And that is really tough if you want to keep that up to date manually. But if you have code gen that just says, hey, let me look at a list of properties on a struct or a protocol and just generate the bevy of classes that you'll need, that would be pretty awesome. And so this has kind of been in the back of my mind for a little while now, but uh, haven't had any chance to work on it. And a friend of the show, Christoph Zablocki, made something called Sorcery a few weeks ago. So Chris, you work with Christoph, right? Yeah, yeah. He's been working with us. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about what sorcery is and what it does? Uh, sure. So um, sorcery, uh, reading right from the GitHub repository here, brings metaprogramming to Swift. Um, so really, what it does is uh, looks at your source code using right, like using Source Kitten. I, I believe it's using Source Kitten under the hood. Um, yeah, it is for sure. Yeah. Uh, don't know how else uh, how else it would work. Uh, and then you can write oh. templates <laughs> to uh, what was that? I was just gonna say you could use a lot of nasty regexes to get in there. Yeah, it would not be, would, would, <laughs> not would not be pretty. So then uh, it, it takes the uh, sort of syntax tree that you have access to through Source Kitten, and lets you use that uh, plus templates that you provide to generate Swift code, and that is uh, obviously lets you save time, and also reduces the potential for mistakes. Uh, like with core data models, uh, you mentioned. There was always the possibility that if you're manually uh, writing those classes, you could, you know, forget something or have a type mismatch versus the actual core data model. So this sort of automation reduces room for potential mistakes. Uh, some of the immediate applications that that uh, I think Christoph had in mind with this tool. Christoph, by the way, is not quite the right way to pronounce his name, but I'll embarrass myself if I if I try to pronounce it any other way. We should have we should have Christoph email into the show with a like a voice snippet of him saying his name so that we can play it on the air. Yeah, because I've always wondered exactly how to say his name. We can ask him about that. Yeah. <laughs> so things that I think he envisioned as an immediate uh, application for this tool are things like writing equality methods or functions for uh, Swift types, right? Particularly if you have an uh, enumeration type, writing the like double equal function is really just repetitive and tedious and frankly error prone, right? So if you have an enum and all of the cases have no associated properties, but one of them has an associated, like uh, only one of them has an associated piece of data, then you have to implement equality yourself. You have to check every single case. Mm -hmm. And then for the one that has the associated thing, you have to unwrap it and then check that the internal contents are equal as well. Right. Uh, and it's real pain in the butt. And every time you change the cases, you also have to go back and change the equality. And if you don't remember to do that, then your equality won't work right. Yeah. It's just hugely painful and like clearly ripe for this kind of automated solution. Other things that you could use this for are uh, automatically pur putting together a nice description method that goes over all the um, all the different like properties and uh, other things defined in a type and printing them out. You could implement that auto in an automated fashion here. 
One of the ones that he has in his uh, in, in the readme is if you want to know how many elements are in each enum. So there's another way to do this that's called case countable, and we can put that in the show notes. It's a little snippet. And what it does is like assuming that your enum is an int, it'll iterate from zero until – and mm-hmm. it'll try to create the enum from the raw value until it hits nil, and then that many is the count. But that's like O of N. It's a kind of – kind of a hacky way to get around the fact that there's no built-in way to get to the count. And so there is a template for generating uh, a static var called count on each enum that will return the number of cases in that count or in that enum. Um, It's like a super, super nice. And if you ever change that uh, enum or if it's not, let's say, representable by by an int, which the other way does require, uh, it'll just do it for you and it just magically appears. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, I mean, we kind of worked around that in Objective-C and in C by, you know, you could have the last element, the enum, be the special count enum. But that, I mean, was such a huge hack, and it's even even less elegant and swift than it ever was in C. Yeah, for sure. So this is a really nice way to get around that. So you would run sorcery uh, just as part of your uh, build process at a build phase fairly early in the uh, Xcode build process. And then, yeah, you have all this stuff uh, just available uh, for, for you to use. Yeah, and you can make your own. I don't know if it ships with any of the ISOM, it ships with a couple of the templates, but you can make your own. So if you have, like, NS coding, you could just generate that. Right. And so for that, like, encodable model thing that that I had in that other project, like, it's just ripe for this kind of thing. Because right now we have to, you know, edit each of those manually every time there's any kind of change. So that part of it's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. If you ever find yourself writing this sort of repetitive code, particularly in a larger code base, this is something I would really recommend that you check out. Uh, It's super useful um, working with, uh, say, Swift value types. uh, If your model layer is is made of value types, yeah, just all all sorts of use cases that uh, aren't even coming to mind right now. But Chris, did you ever write any code that relied on the Objective C like runtime in terms of metaprogramming and stuff like that? Yeah, I absolutely have. Uh, I don't think I've shipped very much code that depends on that, but yeah, I've I've yeah, I've used runtime.h, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've been known to use runtime.h in my time. <laughs> I yeah, I have I have I've actually shipped it. It's stable, it's reliable, it works, but you really have to know what you're doing and if you make a mistake mm-hmm. somewhere, you have to rely on catching that at runtime. So tests are really good to test all the weird little edge cases and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But what's really nice about this is all this does is just generates more Swift. And that Swift is ultimately just compiled by the compiler. So if you write you know, one of these templates and you forget a brace or you forget something somewhere or you like your, your logic is slightly wrong, you'll just be able to look at the code that's output from the tool mm-hmm. and just say, like, oh, this is clearly wrong. I need one more space here, and it'll, and it'll look right. Whereas uh, with the old metaprogramming style of things, you like kind of had to think in your head, what code is this, gonna, is this equivalent to? Whereas this literally right. shows you the code that it's equivalent to. And then that actually gets compiled by the compiler. And if it's wrong, it just won't compile, which is really cool. Right, and this also means that errors that you could have in Objective-C metaprogramming, like type mismatch errors, uh, the Swift compiler will catch that here since, yeah. right, we're just like working in, in plain old Swift here. Absolutely, yeah. So, for example, one of the things, I I'm, I think I have a project that would be really, really ripe for this. I haven't had a chance to play with it yet, but um, we have maybe 10 or so models. They all come from JSON. They all get NS coding compliance. 
the JSON stuff, like, you know, if you read a property and like you said with the with the type mismatch, um, you can make sure to guard everything that's not optional. You can make sure to cast everything. Like if it's expecting an int, you cast it to an int at the right time. And then, you know, if that cast fails, you can also, you know, fail at that point. And so you have such like tightly grained control over or fine grained control rather over the the stuff that gets output. I think this is going to be a, I think it's going to be a total boon. Yeah, I'd be really curious to hear if you use this tool. I'm really curious to hear how it works out. So you you work with Christoph. Are y'all using this in your project yet? We are, yeah. It's uh, clearly a, a very new uh, open source project from him. I mean, he released this uh, maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, 15 days ago. Yeah. And so we, we don't have it deployed to throughout our code base yet. However, we are using it for a few things, and uh, we surely will be using it for uh, more and more because... It's something that we that you know we've run across time and time again is writing this sort of uh, repetitive error prone code. Right. So what what do you use it for? So right now we have uh, it looks like we have three templates in our project. Uh, let me pull that up here. One is um, we talked about uh, an equality test for an enumeration with associated values, and then the others are just printing out a nice uh, like a user friendly description of um certain uh yeah these are enumerations so uh adding an a like user-friendly uh i think this is mainly used for debugging uh description to a couple other enumerations that we have gotcha gotcha based on the like type name and case name yeah that stuff is super useful yeah absolutely. that seems so nice Definitely going to introduce it into some of, some of our projects i think another thing to think about with some of this stuff is, uh, I'm actually looking at the readme now. Another one that we didn't talk about is diffability. So right now, if you want to, if you have like two structs that are not oh, equal, yeah. and you don't know how they're not equal exactly, like right now you kind of just have to print them out and kind of like look through it manually. But with something like this, you can just write a generated function called like diff, diff these two things, and it'll say, hey, this first one has a name that matches the other one, but it has an age that doesn't match the other one. And it'll just print that out for you and say like, like for example, for testing, that kind of thing is super, super useful. So, yeah. Yeah. In in the future, maybe if we do an uh, Objective-C versus Swift episode, which is another topic that's been on our list for ages, uh, it may be cool to talk uh, in a little bit more meta way about whether techniques like this uh, come close to replacing the metaprogramming that we had in Objective-C for common use cases in Swift. Um, yeah, it's super interesting. I, I always thought of metaprogramming as code that writes code, you know? I don't know how much, have you written much Ruby and, and played around with like Rails? There's a lot of crazy metaprogramming stuff. Yeah, I, I, I have used Ruby. I haven't used Rails very much before. Rails has a lot of the same same uh, abilities as Objective-C, often with like a, a little bit nicer of an API for sort of like iterate for me all of the instance variables that are available in this object. Iterate every object that's available in the runtimes like object space. Uh, iterate all the methods on this class. Add this method, add this class method. But And I've always thought exactly that. Uh, it's code that generates like byte code or code that generates things in the runtime table that are the same things as code would generate, but you're just like kind of skipping the middle middle person. And this is truly code that generates code. And I think adding that explicit step in the middle makes it so obvious what you're doing. And it's part of the reason I'm so bullish on, is bullish the one? It's the sorcery project. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting a chance to integrate it into a, into a project that I'm working on. Cool. 
Maybe moving on from from sorcery uh, onto other code gen uh, or metaprogramming sort of topics, I added a link to the show notes to the Swift Protobuf uh, project, which works together with Google's like protocol buffers, which are sort of a um, like binary on the wire, a uh, little bit better defined um, and a little bit more safe alternative to JSON. Uh, is is that something you've you've heard of before? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. It's something I've never had a chance to use, but I've always been curious to use. No one is adventurous enough to try it with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never used this before either, uh, and I actually I don't know that much about it, so I can't really talk very much about it. Beyond that, I know you end up with these uh, proto-files which describe, if not models, then at least how your data looks on the wire going right. between uh, server and client. And uh, this project will generate code to work with your like proto definitions, and uh, so this is sort of another thing that if uh, if you control the server and the client, or you can get someone to buy into using protocol buffers, uh, this would definitely be another code gen tool to uh, to look into that really promises. Um, I, I think promises to make things just a lot more safe and uh, more uh, convenient than than using JSON. Yeah, but that's sure. really all all I can say about this project. Protobufs, the, the benefit is basically, you know the type of everything coming down the wire. It's not like JSON where you just get a key and it could be anything, but it's very strict. It's just like, this is an int32, or this is like <laughs> another object that has this type, and that type is defined somewhere else in the proto file. And if you can share this proto file uh, between your server and your client, they can both generate the code that will represent those models on the wire, and then you can be sure that they'll agree. So no more JSON mismatches, no more, oh, I thought I was getting a string here, but I'm actually getting an array of strings with only one element in it, and then you gotta go talk to the person who's writing the server, and everybody's upset. This just lets you agree on that stuff up front. And I didn't actually know this, I was looking in the protobuf, the Swift protobuf repo, and the code that generates the Swift is actually written in Swift, which I think is just great. Yeah, is sorcery written in Swift, or is this a... Sorcery as well is written in Swift, yeah. 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 Um, but I thought it was nice because I know that the Swift compiler itself is written in C, but uh, I thought it was nice that the some of yeah. the side projects that the Swift team is making is are actually written in Swift. Yeah, absolutely. Much of the Swift standard library is written in Swift too, right? It's right, right. Just the compiler itself that's C plus plus. And it's actually very interesting that you bring up the Swift standard library because the Swift standard library also uses code generation. Oh, that's right. Yeah, didn't yeah. even think about that, but that is true. And the so the Swift standard library uses a sort of custom tool which was developed, uh, as far as I know, just for Swift. Uh, GYB generate your boilerplate, I think, is what it's called. And so if you look at the Swift, um, I, I forget which repository it is. We'll put a link in the show notes. But you can see these files that are used to generate a lot of this repetitive boilerplate code that appears in the standard library. And that is really cool to be able to sort of peek under the, the you know, peek under the hood and see how that works. Yeah, it can be a little bit intimidating sometimes when you go into the Swift standard library repo and you're like, okay, well, this is where all the collections are. I see random access collection. I see you know, mutable collection, I see bidirectional collection, but why is this file like a .gyb file? Like, why isn't a .swift file? And why is the syntax highlighting broken? And you're like, what's going on here? And then if you know that it's it's gyb and you know that it's like a specific form of code generation, I didn't actually know that they that they invented gyb specifically for Swift. I, I didn't know that. Don't don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that it was just a purely internal tool. It, I think uh, it is. I think it is purely yeah. internal. But yeah, so... Uh, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, it's because 
they're like iterating through these four class names and generating one method for each of these class names. And um, I've heard from some people that know the standard library better than I do and that that have even worked on some of this stuff that some of these things are because of limitations in the Swift compiler. For example, if you have like a protocol with an associated type, you can't have any constraints on that associated type. You can't say like, I want to have, you know, sequence has a has an associated type called subsequence, but you really want to uh, constrain that to where subsequence also has to be a sequence and where subsequences iterators elements are the same as your iterators elements, which is really confusing to hear on a podcast. But yeah, <laughs> but basically th- these constraints are quite possible with the Swift compiler. I think they may be coming in Swift 4 and that will reduce some of the need for some of the boilerplate generation that they do in the Swift standard library, but it won't get rid of all of it. I think some of it is just, you know, just totally necessary, which is, you know, if it's necessary for the people who work on the standard library of Swift itself, like it should also be necessary for the people who write the, the apps in the language as well is, is kind of how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, maybe should is, is maybe a little bit strong, but I would say there's no harm in using it. Uh, so while, while you were talking, I added a few links to the show notes um, in the Swift, uh, the Swift repository I linked to uh, the collection algorithms uh, template, uh, which I, which you mentioned and um, also linked to this uh, gyb.py tool. Uh, and that's just a Python script in the Swift repository that processes these templates into uh, the and Swift it's code. One Python file. Um, the whole thing is also, just one Python file. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it's a uh, one thousand one hundred forty-six line Python file, but it's one Python file. There you go. Uh, and then um, I linked to a um, uh, where did that link go? Uh, a post about reading the Swift standard library source for those of you who would like to go further into this. Yeah. It's definitely worth it, and it's it's nice to also be able to settle some of the arguments about like, oh, how does this thing work? How does Flat might work on this specific collection? And you just dive in and find it. And so I recommend right. being able to being really comfortable with diving into the to the standard library source code. It's uh, the beauty of this being open source uh, is that you can do that right, and the beauty of it being open source and such a young language, relatively speaking, is that uh, it's still fairly easy to to jump into the source especially in the standard library and understand what's going on right um sure. things uh, of course tend to accumulate uh cruft or complexity as they get older and uh who knows what if that'll happen with the swift standard library but um i think they've been really good so far about cleaning keeping it tight keeping it clean yeah i think um, i i think so too i i guess i'm thinking more like I ju- jumping into like the uh, C plus plus like standard libraries more complex, but maybe that's also because C plus plus and not Swift. Right. Well, and they've been able to do breaking changes so far. Like yeah. Maybe maybe at some point they will stop making breaking changes freely, and then the the standard library at that point will start accumulating that cruft. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a possibility. So, are there any other kinds of uh, code generation that people use with Swift? What an excellent leading question. Thank you. <laughs> that's called a segue. <laughs> <laughs> There's another tool which we're also using at work called SwiftGen from uh, Olive... uh, Olivier Aligon. A- yes, Ali- thank you. Ali Software on the internet. Yes, He's a little I... alligator with the with the with the hat. Yeah, I remember him as Ali Software. I uh, can I, I can never remember his name besides his initials are OH. I know that because OHHTTP stubs. Another great tool. So SwiftGen is a tool that is uh, also written in Swift that will generate Swift code for 
accessing uh, various assets in your project in a type-safe way. So um, everything from like strings from your uh, like localized strings tables to uh, storyboards and colors and fonts and images. And this is really convenient because a lot of these things in UIKit, right? You're like you give uh, are there stringly typed APIs, right? right? You give so you give something a magic string that refers to some resource, and like the system goes and gets this resource maybe and brings it back to you. So, what are some examples of some of these stringly typed APIs? Oh, I mean, so just something really simple like UI image named, right? Um, get reading an image from disk or from an asset catalog, getting a font that's uh, embedded in your application bundle, or um, storyboards, working with storyboards, uh, segues. There's magic strings that various parts of your application have to know about. You kind of name the segue, and then you can refer to that segue by the string of its name. Right, and so you have to have that like string defined in multiple places and that obviously creates room for error when when something changes down the road or when you just mistype something right or yeah yeah it's a real problem yeah and so this tool uh, again you'd run it as a uh, as a build phase and it will look through all these resources and generates uh, enumerations uh, in swift that represent these uh, string constants. So that rather than referring to an image or a storyboard uh, segue with a string, you have uh, these nice constants that you can use with these APIs. Yeah. This is a great tool. I've never used this. So you you do use this in your project? Yeah, we do. Uh, We actually are not are not using it really heavily. Uh, obviously, we do have images and assets catalogs and um, localized strings. We're not really using storyboards and segues uh, because it's just such a clumsy thing to work with in Swift. Right. As we discussed a while back, we're using the coordinator pattern uh, to, to manage flow throughout the application. Yeah. In, in a project that I'm working on, we do have storyboards, and there's basically a way. Uh, I think uh, SwiftGen adds a class method to each you know, a class that has a, a storyboard that, that backs it. Um, so the UI view controller, you, ha- you would say make with storyboard or whatever. So I have a project where we actually did bring that stuff over just because grabbing the storyboard by name and then like creating, initializing this, the view controller with its name is like kind of clunky and I don't want to have to rely on that every time. And yeah. So we basically have it pull from the name of the class and that's where it finds the files and it does all that stuff for you. Use code gen to create those extensions we kind of create those extensions manually but in some sense it is a little bit of meta programming because you use the name of the class that you're in that like you know if you're like location view controller it'll use the string of that class from like you know if you do string describing the, the type uh, you'll get a string of the class name and then from that it goes and finds fatal errors if it fails and then returns that so it's a little it's a, a little bit of meta programming but we don't actually use this tool for the code gen but i think we should yeah, I, why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, why not? And I think it actually used to be written in Ruby, so it's now that it's written oh, in really? Swift. I, I actually didn't know yeah. that. I, I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it used to be written in Ruby. Hmm. But yeah, still pretty cool. I'm glad that you mentioned too that it adds some uh, nicer, nicer API around storyboards in particular because. Uh, I had forgotten that because we're we're not using that part of this. One other thing that I really liked that we're not using now, but that I really would like to try to use, is that uh, you can generate an enumeration based on a list of colors just in text or even with a, like an OS ten color palette file. Right. And uh, that seems like something that, that that could be kind of fun to play with. Right now, we just have a like extension on uh, UI color yeah. that we use to get our applications colors, but. Um, yeah, this seems like it would be really nice too. There's a benefit to the extension on the class 
way, which is that, like, let's say you're saying, like, if you dot background color equals, you can right now in Swift, you can just write dot black. Whereas if you kept the, um, you know, extension on UI color with the class methods, you can just write, like, dot my teal color or whatever, and it would still work. Whereas if you have an enum, yeah. then you have to, like, pass it into an initialize. So you do, like, dot init with, like, color name, and then you pass in the enum. So I feel like it's a little bit nicer of an API to, to just have the class method. Yeah. So I don't think uh, I have anything else to talk about, Sarush. Uh, do you, uh, you have anything else to mention? No, those are all the code generation things in Swift that I know about. Okay, cool. If uh, any of our listeners have other interesting tools in this vein that we should check out, obviously, please do let us know. Otherwise, uh, I hope this has been a useful tour of some tools in, in, in Swift that we have for um, providing more type-safe metaprogramming than we had in Objective-C and really cutting down on some of the... Uh, sort of duplicative boilerplate that we end up writing in Swift. And uh, yeah, that's all. Uh, We'll talk to you soon.